From the studios of WHUPLP in Hillsborough, North Carolina, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, everyone. Now, those of you that know me know that there are very few people in the world that are bigger jujitsu nerds than me. You also know that if I use the term nerd, it is universally a compliment. But one of those is Andrew Bittner. Uh, people in the local North Carolina area know Andrew as a very successful competitive brown belt, as the Toro BJJ reigning Toro Cup champion no gi with a cool belt to show for it, and one of the best resources in the area for uh, analyzing technical details, particularly of jiu-jitsu competitors nationally. And so, with EBI at the Eddie Bravo Invitational Featherweights last night, and with Andrew never having been on the show, despite the fact that we've tried to have him on several times, the timing is finally matched up, and we are very, very excited to welcome Andrew Bittner into the studio. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're going to get into Andrew's jiu-jitsu journey, and we're going to talk and break down the aforementioned EBI card last night, which we both watched featuring Judy Ocasio, an outstanding performance by John Callistine, which Andrew predicted. You know, and you basically uh, outlined how, how it would go beforehand, but we're going we're gonna break, to break it down and talk about some of the standout performances. But first, we've got to tell you what's going on in the area and how to get a hold of us. First of all, you should compete at U.S. Grappling, March 3rd in Raleigh. If you're anywhere near the Triangle, it's the best tournament organization around. It's always a fun tournament. I am registered for the Adult Brown Belt Division uh, because Chrissy Lindsay assures me I will get more matches that way than if I go with the Old Man Brown Belt Division, which means me and Andrew are going to be in the Absolute Division uh, t- together. So... Uh, so it's gonna be a fun one. yeah, we're gonna actually mean mug each other for the rest of this. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Well, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be a. It's always a fun get together of friends in the local area. Yeah, it's terrific, especially with like all the uh, you know so many new competitors popping up. You know, I'm really excited to get to compete against some people that I haven't get to, gotten to compete against before to see more folks. So that's always a great time. Check it out, uh, March 3rd in Raleigh. If you know anything that we want to promote on the show or that you might want to get out there, uh, you can always get a hold of us. You can email the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. You can get us on our Facebook page where we're very active. That's facebook.com slash cagesideradio. If you prefer Twitter and Instagram, we're on there as well. Our Instagram is Dirty White Belt, and our Twitter is DWB Radio. So get at us with questions for future guests. Very excited about next week's show. I've done an hour interview with Jose Tufi who did a dissertation about Brazilian jiu-jitsu history. We're going to do another hour next Sunday, going to edit that into a nice long show for y'all and talk about the origins of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But this week is not about the origins of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. This week is about what happened last night and what's happened in the last few years since Andrew Bittner has been training. So, Andrew, tell us about how you started training jiu-jitsu because you haven't always been at Gracie Raleigh. No. So I actually actually was texting my brother last night to – uh, I was kind of curious because I can't remember the exact order that it happened because this is going to sound ridiculous, but I'm pretty sure that my first exposure to, well, it was UFC was my first exposure, mm-hmm. but not just watching the fights, the video game. <laughs> I know that sounds, yeah. Which iteration of the video game? Like the, the very Chuck first Liddell one. one? <laughs> the very first one. So the very first UFC that like came out in like 09, I think maybe even before that, um, yeah, my brother got ridiculously good at that game. And then when we're, we, well, we always joke, I'm super competitive. He's not competitive, so I'm just competitive with him. <laughs> so we, we were always, like, playing each other that game. Like, I mean, we had, like, no life. We just played video games, like, early on in high school, like, all the time. So um, we both were trying to get really good at that game. And then our favorite part about the game was the submissions. We thought those were, like, so cool, right? Um, so that was my first exposure to learning submissions was through the UFC video game. And then that translated to them watching the Ultimate Fighter TV show that was on Spike, which happened at the time to be Dan Henderson and Michael Bisbing. A great season, by the way. Oh, that was amazing. Clear struggle of good versus evil. And then, so then that proceeded to become UFC 100, which was the first UFC pay-per-view I watched, and got to see that H-bomb from, mm-hmm. whew, that was nasty. Um, and then 
Dan Henderson actually came to do a jiu-jitsu seminar in my hometown, Hagerstown, Maryland. And that basically was me standing in the bleachers watching him put on a seminar. And it was like a meet and greet after. So I got pictures with him, signed my UFC 100 poster. And that was my first exposure to it. And we would basically put like blankets down in the basement and just wrestle each other and try to do these moves that we saw. I think my first heel hook I did back in 09 when I, I saw like the reap from Mount and straight into it or whatever. And then I basically stopped until I went to college and met my friend who was a blue belt at the time. His name's uh, his name was Josh. Um, so he was training at a local gym there called 302 BJJ. Um, they are uh, a balance affiliate from Philly. Yeah. Miglarice Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yoga guys. Oh, yeah. So I, I trained underneath. So he basically... I saw his like license plate. It said jujitsu on it. So we just started nerding out, talking about UFC and stuff like that. And he finally got me to come out to some classes. And um, so I was training underneath Bill Walters then from about, I think that was 2011 until I graduated in 2013 and moved down here. And then kind of wasn't, didn't really research gyms and just kind of picked the first thing that kind of popped up. And when I, you know, you Google Raleigh, martial arts, jujitsu, whatever. And Gracie was the first one that came up. So... Mm. Jumped in with Brandon and been there for four and a half, almost five years now. You know, it's funny how many people got into jiu-jitsu through the UFC and MMA because I did too. A lot of guys of my vintage, obviously, we watched Hoist in the early UFCs. Yeah. And it's funny how some of us, like like for me, I barely watch MMA anymore. I'm all about jiu-jitsu now. And I know that a lot of, of folks that are like that, like John Piper from Charlotte, and I, and I talk about this about it, how, but, but I'm still really grateful to it that it served as this kind of entry point. Um, and so it's interesting to hear your story as well. And like I also, you know, much much like you, I didn't research schools in the area. I just kind of stumbled into Seth's gym, and luckily uh, turned out to be exactly the right place for me. So what are the, what is the difference, if anything? Like what difference did you notice from training where you were training when you went to college and your training environment with Brandon Bumpkin and all those guys at Gracie Raleigh? Um, it was so when I started training, I had the luxury of like basically getting picked up by there was a purple belt and a brown belt at the time um, that were probably about, I think, they, how much do they weigh? They're going to be insulted when I say I think they were like 230 and like 280 or something. Like they were monsters. And so, I mean, I couldn't do anything. They wouldn't let me do anything to them unless it was perfect technique, right? Mm -hmm. So just like emphasizing from day one, just being like perfect in every way. And I mean, basically just getting crushed for the first six months as usual, but not just like crushed by speed like just getting like just learning how to tolerate like just the basic waterboard from north south position or something mm -hmm. right um but i stylistically they were um so i think our lineage came down from helson um i don't know if this is general for all helson affiliates but i've kind of noticed a lot of over a lot of over underpasses double underpasses very low low guard passing game from from those kind of people and super fundamental right uh basic close guard very close guard heavy right um so and then i come to gracie raleigh where i don't know what it was but nobody would let me get close guard on him like it was a fight just a close guard mm -hmm. um and i think that was a difference between like i think you know at at my old gym people were comfortable attacking but also comfortable defending in close guard Whereas I think it was kind of avoided and people were just, I mean, I think when I joined Gracie Raleigh, it was mostly blue belts and a couple purple belts. Um, yeah, because the gym was relatively young at the time. Yeah. So you're looking at a bunch of guys that were just, like, everyone just wanted to kill each other. <laughs> like, basically, I mean, it was... What's changed? <laughs> yeah. But, but that's what happens, right? So you got a bunch of people that are just in there just trying to destroy each other at blue belt with like, you know, limited technique, and then they start coming up and they don't slow down. They just get better technique and they just keep that pace the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, obviously some people slow down, find their game and whatnot, but yeah, it, it's funny to see that like people just like hold one speed until they start figuring it out. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I know Gracie Raleigh was a lot more open guard, um, yeah, open guard passing, um, not, you know, if you're if you're on bottom, you're 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 standing and basing and getting on top. Like there wasn't much, you know, there weren't many open guard players. Mm -hmm. And there was a change at that time where I think it kind of shifted towards that. I know when I 
I came in and I was basically bringing my close guard because that I mean that was my A game was just get to close guard and then you know attack from there so it, it's interesting seeing that difference and I still say that to this day is like if you come in trying to play close guard at Gracie Raleigh like it's nobody like people avoid it like the plague there yeah they're not going to let you get it easy and this is one of the things that i think is interesting about modern sport jiu-jitsu and the way that it evolves is like people look at you know if you talk to a lot of good sport jiu-jitsu practitioners they'll talk about closed guard as if it's this antiquated thing that is not no longer relevant when from my perspective the reality is the good guys know to avoid it yes. and because they know that a good person's closed guard is death Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what that's. I mean, that's still what I kind of like pride myself in my tournament. At least when I was going, when I was doing no gi, it was one thing. But like when I went back to gi to get ready for worlds, I was like, well, my whole my whole game was back to close guard again. It was funny to see it. It's like it never left. But I, it's not like something I train in the gym normally. Like I don't train close guard in the gym regularly. Mm-hmm. But I go into a tournament, and that's basically all I was playing for. You know, the four months leading up to worlds last year. And so you mentioned training for the Worlds. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about your competition goals because you mentioned you're a very competitive person. You're certainly an active competitor. I've done some, done a ton of U.S. grappling tournaments. I've done some big tournaments. Are you a goal setter? Like, do you say, hey, these are the tournaments I want to do. These are the tournaments that I want to do well at. Or do you take it as it comes? Yeah, I probably should do that. Um, kind of take it as it comes. Uh, for me, my biggest goal is just my jiu-jitsu. Um, I mean, tournaments are an afterthought. You know, I mean, I'm a perfectionist. So I know early on it was tough for me to compete because in my head I'm like, I'm not good enough, right? But it, you finally talk yourself into it where you're like, or there's a tournament that you just really can't not compete at because it's like, when I mean, when U.S. Grappling Raleigh was coming in when I was a blue belt, like I didn't have that luxury back when I was up in Delaware. Like, um, so I pretty much had to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be stupid not to compete in those, right? Um, but at the same time, I was like, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not. I didn't feel like I had everything dialed in. Um, I still sort of feel that way, but you know, it's nice feeling like my game's a lot more complete now, and I can start focusing on like the minute details a little bit more. Hey, Betsy O'Donovan. Yes, Jeffa. This time, I have a question for you. Oh my goodness. So, as you recall, you did a jiu-jitsu tournament. Mm-hmm. What did you wear for that first jiu-jitsu tournament? So, uh, funny you should ask, Chrissy Lindsay likes to tease me about this. Uh, At my first U.S. grappling tournament, um, I wore a sundress, a blue linen sundress for my weigh-in, and I walked up with my big jujitsu bag with my gi in it, and Chrissy Lindsay looked at me and just said, wow, what are you wearing? (laughs) Was it a pearl weave sundress, a single weave sundress, or a technical weave sundress? Well, it was my travel sundress, and it was strapless because you don't want to give people a collar to choke you with uh, when you're weighing in at a jiu-jitsu tournament. But uh, one of the reasons I love that story is um, Chrissy and Brian Lindsay and the whole team at U.S. Grappling do such a good job making even total newcomers who have no idea what they're doing feel comfortable and welcomed and at home when they show up for their first tournament. Uh, So I don't know if you are just starting out competing or if you've been doing it forever, uh, but I would encourage you guys to start out at a U.S. grappling tournament, um, and there's a great one coming up Saturday, March 3rd at the Raleigh Convention Center, and you can uh, get those early registration uh, price breaks until Friday, February 23rd. Whether it's your first tournament or your 100th, you'll have a good experience at U.S. grappling. Register online at usgrappling.com. Thanks for supporting the folks who support us. All right. So when you say your game is a little more complete now, and you, you told us a little bit about how you started. Like, well, tell us, tell me about the evolution of your game, because hmm. a lot of people in the area think of you as a, as a leg lock guy, and certainly that's a, a facet of your game, but you do a lot of other stuff too. And so tell me a little bit about how your game's evolved over the years. Yeah, so I mean, White Belt was nothing but closed guard. Uh, white, <laughs> yeah, White Belt was a ton of closed guard, triangle variations, armbar variations. Uh, I don't think I really had, you know, I had, I had a good Kimura game. Coming up at, at my gym, I had a couple people that were really good at Kimuras. Some people that were really good at triangles, um, head and arm chokes. But, I mean, for white belt, it was pretty much all just being on my back surviving, right? Uh, blue belt finally started to open up a little bit, especially when I came to Gracie Raleigh. And I actually started uh, – my first guy that I tried to emulate and study a bunch was actually Keenan. 
um, Keaton Cornelius. So, I mean, I was all about that worm guard there for a little while. Um, and then I think when I got my purple belt, I kind of knew that if I wanted to do Nogi, I always kind of, I always trained Nogi once a week and like Nogi, so I already knew that heel hooks would be a thing. So I was sure to start studying those. Like, I already knew I needed to look at those. So I didn't know, you know, I, I went through, you know, Dean Lister, you know, um, some of those those other guys, like Barry Yoshida, um, you know, trying to find out who I was going to mimic. And then, you know, that, that was about the same time those Henzo guys kind of, like, came on the scene and made a name for themselves in leg locks. So started studying them for leg locks. And then you start seeing, like, oh, wow, they, like, systemize, like, all these different positions. And they do the work in the study. So as much as I would love to do the work, but they're already kind of doing it. So I just kind of see, I watch every match of any of the Henzo guys that comes out um, and just kind of see what grips they're using, what setups are they using, what is the hierarchy that they're using for moves. Because I think the biggest thing is, I mean, there's tons of moves to do, but, like, what is best practice? And I think what they're doing is best practice right now, at least on the no-gi scene. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to see what they do on gi because I want to be the first person watching, trying to see what they do for stand-up, what they do for, yeah. Yeah, so your game early on was based on Keenan Cornelius. Mine was based on Keenan Ivory Wayans. I think I'm about branching out to the other Wayans brothers as I I get the brown belt. But in in all seriousness, the... the, uh, So one of the things that you mentioned about your process of learning that I find super interesting... Many of us, like many of us jujitsu nerds, watch all the DVDs that come out, all the instructionals. And I, I am certainly among that number. I have my Dropbox up right now that has like 80 hours of ju- just instructional content. But like one of the things that you're doing, because a lot of the guys that you admire and the guys that are, uh, you know, the top guys, no gi at least in the world right now, are consciously not putting out instructionals and are only teaching their stuff at seminars, you do a ton of tape study to sort of break that down on your own. And so I'm interested in, like, do you think the process of doing that breakdown, uh, like, do you... Do you learn more from doing that than you would if someone was just teaching you a move, do you think? Or, 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 is, it, or is it a shortcut to have someone teach you the move? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say having somebody – like, obviously, if I knew exactly what I needed to learn and being that precise, having somebody teach it to me, yes. But I'm like – so, yeah, like, like when I'm – even when it's not jiu-jitsu, like, I'm just an information – like I love just I have ADD when it comes to learning stuff. So like I want to learn everything, anything, and as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And for me, having somebody explain it to me is sometimes the slowest way. So that's why I love just being able to just watch tape, 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 tape. And I can just take it in as fast as I, you know, as you know, as much as I mentally can. Yeah, you, uh, mentioned, you mentioned the term best practices, and like not a lot of and some. Of, this is a term of art that I think some of our most of our listeners know about, but I want to explain anyway because I think it's really it's applicable to all facets of life. Yeah, but but especially jujitsu, right? And and where I think a flaw, like it's almost better to be a weak, small person learning jujitsu because I think the I was talking I was talking about this with a white belt the other night who did a silly move and was like, well, it worked, didn't it? And I was like, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is to have that work, yes. <laughs> you know, because it's good feedback on bad practice. And yeah. if you implement best practices early on, then you build that practice. Yeah, it's like trying to toehold white belts. It's like, oh, I got the tap or he did what I want. It's like he just didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. Like he tapped out of fear, not because it was like legit. If you did that to anybody else, like above a purple belt level, then that would never work. Like, yeah. Why, why doesn't that? Why can't I Ezekiel anybody from inside the closed guard anymore? What's like, well, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's holding yourself accountable, right? I mean, I think I think that's the biggest thing that I. And and it's something you have to train. Like it's not, you know, it's 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 hard to know. What's saying what's going to work at the high level, right? Like I mean, the only way, like I don't know that from experience because I don't compete at the highest level, right? Um, but I see what works, and I see what people aren't doing at the highest level, so I know that that's – I avoid that. And I try to figure out – obviously, I try to think, well, why wouldn't that work at the highest level? Like, what is – what would stop that? What, and it's – a lot of the times it would be like, well, it's very easy to then give up a transition into the back or something like that. Like, I, I know that's the biggest thing right now that, you know, I'm trying to work on my – myself personally is feeding leg locks into back takes Mm. um because it's you know it's really easy to defend at the highest level it's easy to defend a lot of these leg locks by giving up your back but the hard part is is most people aren't good enough at that transition so when they go to transition to the back they'll lose position right Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, it just takes reps, reps, reps in that transition. This is an interesting thing given the, the couple of weeks of training we've had. We had Mihir Paravitz come out and trained with him, took a seminar with him, and uh, you know, and had a night at Elevate where we trained with him and with Glayton Mello. And both of those guys said interesting things related to what you said because Mihir taught a heel hook. And he's like, I know this works because I've hit it on top guys, and like, I don't want you – doing the heel hook that everybody was doing 10 years ago where you throw your leg over, reach the knee, and yeah. the guy just rolls. And we, and, because he's like, if this works on the elite of the elite, I know it'll work on everybody, so, so do this. But Glayton said something else that, that wasn't contrary to what Mia said, but that I thought was the, sort of, for me, the paradox of jiu-jitsu. Because Glayton showed a triangle that a lot of people would say, okay, that's, that's not right. Where he has, it's like a reverse triangle, but he gets the tap. And he's like, is this wrong? And like a lot of people were like, yes. And he's like, if he taps, it's right. <laughs> yeah. and, and which is the thing about jiu-jitsu that, that I find interesting is we can try and define best practices, and we should. But we also have to recognize, like, sometimes people either because of body type or because of experience or whatever, are able to make funky things that you would say are incorrect. You know, I'm making the air quotes right now. Make it work. And if you can make it work, it's it's no longer incorrect. Yeah, but then you're also talking about a triangle where it's like you're already in a like a high-level finishing position already. Mm-hmm. Like if you get to a triangle, like it doesn't – it's it's like pick your – like how – what fancy finish do you want to use? I already have one arm in, one arm out. Like it's just a matter of do I take the arm? Do I take – and it's – I mean at that point – that is best practice. I mean, that's where I'm going to now. So I'm using the coolest thing I'm working on right now is probably off angle triangles, mm. like not trying to finish them like straight on or just like, you know, your normal angle to the side is trying to. Yeah, there, there, there's a few funky angles that I've been seeing the Henzo guys use. If you watch Gordon Ryan against Halleck Gracie, the, the triangle finish he uses at the end is a very off angle variation. And I've been I think is nasty. If you like watching amazing jiu-jitsu matches and supporting people in your community, you need to go to Toro Cup 9 on April 14th at the Cageside Warehouse, 124 Lotta Road in Durham, North Carolina. You need to go out there because it's going to support Hubao Karaoke's medical fund. The local black belt had a stroke this year and we're raising money to help support his recovery. Additionally, it's James Boomer Hogaboom's birthday that day. And if you know Boomer, the owner of Cageside MMA and one of the brains behind Toro BJJ, does a lot to support the local scene. So get out here and have Boomer have a good birthday as well that's toro cup nine april 14th at the cage side warehouse 124 lotta road in durham north carolina and if you want to match on the card contact john bagels telford this is another interesting thing because there's best practices for your own learning and best practices for teaching others right because yes for me stuff that i look at right now that i'm like oh this is gold this is i'm learning so much from this yes. if i'd seen that a white belt it would have been terrible for me exactly <laughs> like that's what i know when we had dave camarillo come um like one of the questions i asked him was like well how does he like to structure his curriculums because mm-hmm. i mean that's something like i mean i'm picking up classes whenever you know brandon can't teach or something right now um so for me it's kind of i'm trying all different kinds do i teach like a chain do i teach a system do i just pick one move and just just go through the details of it like i think that's the hardest thing for me is you know in my mind i'm like i just want to get these guys i want to teach them everything all at once and it's like but if you teach them everything you teach them nothing exactly (laughs) yeah exactly and i'm just like it's such a it's such a battle now so i mean there's an it's a there's a separate skill to teaching and it's it's i mean it's the more i learn about it the more i respect everybody who's a instructor right now so i'm i'm slowly making my way through that now and trying to like I say, like if I'm working one on one with somebody or like with like two people, it's great because I can just like like information dump on them, and normally they'll probably get most of it, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you get a class of twenty people though with a wide array of skill level and experience level, and one guy belts, all brown belts, right. mixed of all of them, like ah, I'm gonna make a weird analogy, but it's one that I think is 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 apt, which is so I'm teaching at UNC this term, and I'm teaching. Uh, interactive media so i'm teaching like uh, how to make infographics in adobe illustrator how to put them on the web and because of years of practice and this this is my process of learning as a jiu-jitsu practitioner and as a teacher as well where it's like i'm learning things myself at a prodigious rate and then i have to explain those things to other people which uses a different part of my brain and so i'm up explaining to these people okay here's how you use illustrator and i'm doing all these keyboard shortcuts which i've worked into my process over the years and they're just things that i innately do and the class is like 
go back five steps. <laughs> How did you do that what one thing? What was the thing? magic you just did there? Right? And like, I'm not, I'm not saying that to like. You overlooked that. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, I'm, I'm like basically a four stripe blue belt illustrator, so I'm not an illustrator genius by any <laughs> means. But, but, but it's more of a like when you learn an armbar and you learn all the details and then you go out and you workshop that and you hit it in competition. And you do all these things that you don't even realize you're doing, but you innately have baked them into your practice because they work. Yeah. And now you're like, okay, now I have to, oh, okay, I'm putting my arm here. And, yeah. and then you have to explain that to someone else, and it's a totally different process. Like You can do a whole lesson just on like different uh, gripping entrances to back takes. Mm -hmm. like, like there's so many different like, – and, and that's the biggest thing I'm working now. It's like it's so funny when you like you start breaking down. If I grab – his hand this way he's going to grab me this way and then i can counter into like a gift wrap or something right and it's like but i could teach a whole class and just like you could teach like, a whole unit on that stuff it's man. insane yeah. but it's just like and i'll overlook it in a you know so like somebody will teach a move and i'm like but how do you get there and like oh well you could do a whole lesson on how to actually get to that position so one thing that jake whitfield like one of the things that jake whitfield told me early on that i have always been that that was a light bulb moment for me was every technique has a setup an entry and a finish and it sounds like a basic insight now but at the time i was like okay because i had a pretty good cross collar choke from guard but my entries but like eventually guys started getting wise to it and started defending it and it's like jake's like well you need more setups you need more yeah. entries to get to that position and uh, I, I will tell you this too on the topic of grips like one of the best dvds i've ever watched and there should be more dvds like this is Jimmy Pedro's grip fight like a champion? And Jimmy, you know, one of the best judoka that America has, has produced. And we just don't talk about it as much as we should because there's just as much detail to the grip fighting and what you can do with the, okay, here are the grips I want. Oh, I can't get the grips I want. How do I get the grips I want? Wait, he got a grip I really don't want. How do I counter that grip that I really don't want while at the same time setting up the grip that I do and want? And the worst part about that, though, is like, you know, guys that are starting out or something would look at that and be like, oh, it's stupid. Right, exactly, exactly. They'd be like, well, well I'm going to watch two hours of gripping. Dude, when you realize, though, like how powerful grip, like, like when somebody literally cannot do what they want because they can't get the grips that they want and you always have superior grips, it is the funniest thing to watch somebody just be like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> One of the things Seth will do with a blue belt, like at least he did this with me when somebody thinks they've started to learn jujitsu, is he will get <laughs> one dominant grip and then watch you try to do things. Yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's fun, man. And, there, and like this is part of what makes, uh, you know, it makes jujitsu so fascinating, right? Is because, I mean, you, you and I have both spent, I don't even know how many hours over the last eight or so years on jujitsu. And here we are talking about something that should be a very basic element that still yeah. really fascinates us that I would say I still have a ton to learn about. Oh, yeah, that's the biggest thing. Um, yeah. I and. I mean, you can get into all sorts of, like, when you talk about, like, butterfly guard, I know that the big thing the Henzo guys are great at is they they incorporate, uh, they will grip their entries into, you know, butterfly single leg X, but they're, they'll basically, as they're grip fighting, they're using their legs to pull themselves in, like, hooking behind the legs as they're grip fighting. So it's a lot of simultaneous leg and foot fighting, which when you try to explain that to somebody and they, they finally see it, it's like, wait, Am I rubbing my belly and patting my head, or am I like patting my belly and rubbing my? What? what yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so so the, we we've gone down the pedagogical rabbit hole, which is an awesome rabbit hole. But I want to talk to you about Andrew Bittner, the competitor, a little bit. Okay. And and, and so you know you've had a lot of memorable matches that that I've watched and that that uh, that have been big fun. You've had a ton of great matches with Bobby Gurley, for example. Oh yeah. But one of my favorite matches of yours um, is against another really high level competitor, especially no gi competitor, Josh Williams. Oh yeah. And that was at Torah Cup. And Josh is a beast. He's good on top. He's good on bottom. He's good with legs. And so I'm wondering if you can talk us through, like, do you like first of all, do you do you think that's your biggest win, and or do you not think in those terms? Yeah, I guess I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't think in those terms because I think every match is different. Um, and it, it's it's funny. It's funny thinking back, like, what kind of gets you to that point? Like, like is my game different because? Like, was I actually learning new stuff? Because, I mean, that match was funny. Like, our first one was just a constant, like, uh, you know, like a leg lock battle back and forth. And, you know, coming into the second one, I mean, if, if you remember watching it, like, he did not want to play that game. Yeah. You know, whether or not, I mean, he was just, he was stuffing my entries from over and over and over. I mean, we saw I tried to stand at one point with um, I tried to... I was like I was standing in basin, kind of doing like a like a combat stance, trying to get him to drive in more. Um, 
I think it basically came like I mean he kept lowering his posture, lowering his posture, and then when I finally got you know uh, wrist control, he kind of like tried to dive his arm back in, mm-hmm. and when I went to snatch it up, his arm got kind of like stuck halfway. Mm. You know, so it's just one of those things of like like it's it, it's funny when you when you play legs, you know, you open up the upper body when you you know when you play the upper body, you open up the, the legs a lot. Um, I think that was just kind of an I think that was a good statement for my jiu-jitsu at the time because I was trying to get away from leg locks and I was trying to start chaining to the upper body more. And, you know, I mean, that was a perfect example of where I was at. I think it was even funnier. Like like I said, I mean, he, he came in, you know, he came in ready to go. Yeah. And that was a lot. He felt a lot different than our first match, too. And I think it was like a year. It was probably like a year yeah. later. Maybe I think maybe, that was. Yeah, like, time flies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you talked about Bobby Gurley. Like, he's always fun to go against because I think we were – I think we're three and two right now. <laughs> Sorry, because I think the the first time I got him with like a heel hook, and then he like comored me like two matches in a row. His comore is insanely like, yeah. So that was something I've been working on is my comore defense. But and then I was lucky enough to catch him twice at uh, the U.S. Grappling like a year ago. Mm-hmm. Which again, it's crazy to think that that was almost a year ago at this time. I think. Hey, Lourdes. Hey. What's your favorite tournament organization in jiu-jitsu? Um, that's an easy one. It would have to be U.S. Grappling. And actually, I love them so much that I'm going to go to their ref training in January. I know that they put on a lot of ref trainings because they're serious about the competitor experience. I've actually gone to two of the ref trainings myself because I wanted to be really sure that I was a decent ref. Yeah, I really like the way that they do the ref training. One, you can go to the ref training and you, you can get your training done. But then they even kind of mentor you at one of the events. And so you um, you get to practice doing your refing during real matches. And um, I really like that. U.S. Grappling is run by grapplers for grapplers. You can compete in the new year. Register early to get a break on price at usgrappling.com. Yeah, and Bobby's Kimura game is something that everybody has to respect. And like, so I've thrown out a couple of names, and you know, two really, really tough, really game competitors. So when you think of the toughest guys you've competed against, who do who do you think of? Honestly, let's see. I mean, so for me, my last match before I went to Worlds was a big one for me because he beat me before, and I did not want to go to Worlds with a loss. So I think the most game match I had was probably Thurman Green. Oh, yeah. Because that was, I mean, he's just a heavy dude. Yeah, and, and strong. He has, yes. He has some of the best grips. Like, I remember when we fought the first time, I was in on a leg lock on him. But that was early before I really was, I guess, where I was really comfortable with controlling position, understanding how to maintain and even stay relaxed. Like, I mean, I would freak out when I got on a leg just to make sure that I, you know, finished or something, right? Um but I remember, like, the only reason I couldn't get – I couldn't break his grip the first time. So to go against McGee, I was, one, worried because I was like, I don't need a loss right before I go to Worlds for, like, I need this momentum, right? And then I was lucky enough to, like – I think I ended up – yeah, I think I ended up getting a Kimura off his pass attempt and then, like, kind of like Shaolin sweeped him kind of over the top and then ended up taking his back. And I was like – well, glad that one's over <laughs> because, I mean, he's, he's one of those guys. I mean, same thing with Josh, same thing with Bobby. It's like you, you sit across from them and you're like, well, this, I mean, this isn't going to be easy. Like, yeah. But, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, I say those guys just because those were memorable matches for me. But I know there's been tons of matches I've had that, you know, even ones I've, you know, I mean, those are matches I've won. Like, there's matches I lost against high-level guys. Like, I mean, I think I think some of my toughest matches are ones I win, though. And but I noticed like an evolution in my game in the process. Um, yeah. One thing I know, that I do want to ask you about also, because you know, you, you those guys are guys that are in your weight class, and you've also had really memorable matches either in super fights or absolutes against guys like DeAndre Corbet and oh, Anthony, yeah. and Anthony Elbert. And so I'm wondering who who do you, do you think of when you think of like the most technical guys around? Are those guys on the list? DeAndre's insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember he he basically motivated me to get a lot better when we talk about grip fighting. I mean that's that that was the biggest hole in my game at that time because I couldn't grab him. Like I I couldn't find him. Like he would go to pass, I would regard, and the second I would regard, I would try to like go for like a pant grip or like the next thing I know he was already past me again. Like I remember the whole game was me like regaining like quarter guard or something 
and like him just freeing his foot over and over and over and over. I just couldn't solidify a, a guard against him. Um, and you know, and you see him now. I mean, at the highest level. I mean, you just see him. It's it's great. Like I got to go. I got to see him compete at Worlds last year. Like watching him at the highest level, it's insane. So he was. He'll be one of those guys that you know I'll always look at for the local scene. And I mean, you threw out Anthony's name. Like I mean. Like that that choke he hit at Toro Cup, like that kind of like it was like a punch choke, like zip tie, if you know what that is. But yes. oh, it was, yeah, that that was fun to watch. So yeah, both those guys, and and you know, and this isn't even talking about you know the the killer black belts in the area. You know, it's just fun looking at my peers in terms of like skill level and be like, oh, these guys are good. <laughs> yeah, most you got definitely. so much talent in the area. It's awesome. And watching the level rise, right? Because it's fun for me too to watch all you guys making each other better as you compete against each other and train against each other. And you know, and 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 so that's just something that happens either at US grappling competitions or open mats or things like that. Um, so that's cool. It's also really fun to watch the Gracie Raleigh crew sort of grow, right? Cuz I remember when that oh, gym yeah. opened. And yeah. and now you have really fierce competitors. We got seven brown belts, like fifteen purple belts, like and tough purple belts too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, and we got like a whole separate day crew than we do our night crew. So it's funny whenever anybody like kind of crosses over. Um, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot lot of promise coming up in the white belts. Um, I think we're gonna have a good turnout for U.S. Grappling Raleigh. So awesome. Yeah, so I'm excited to see a lot of our white belts compete. Um, I think we got a good turnout for even purple belts. A lot of people that maybe haven't like competed in a while. So, um, yeah, they're a great crew to train with. And like, <laughs> as as much as they 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 probably dread you know rolling against me sometimes, depending on what mode of training I'm in. Um, yeah, I mean I, my game would not be what it is without them. That's for sure. You know, a lot like myself, you get a lot around to a lot of the other local gyms, either whether it's teaching workshops or whether it's training at open mats and just getting in roles with folks. Who do you think are some of the – like we talked about some of the, the best practitioners and technicians and competitors. Who, are, who do you think are some of the best teachers in the area? And you can certainly talk about the guys at your own gym, but I'm wondering if, you, if you've been impressed by other folks that you've had the chance to take classes from in North Carolina. Yeah, so, I mean, stylistically, I think Brandon's like the best coach for me. Like it's in the way he approaches jujitsu is very similar to my own. He just doesn't have the luxury of time to really tape study as much as I do. Um, but he has a very systemized approach to every position. Um, when we when we work when we work technique, we'll like for instance half guard. Like I think, and I always try to write these down because I think he has ten different three step systems from half guard using all different gripping situations whether or not you have an underhook whether or not you have a butterfly hook whether or not the opponent has reverse it negative half whatever right so his approach to jiu is to complements mine very well and you know i get to do my own tape study and i get to go in and then we'll work like a completely different thing that'll be like oh well this is perfect for me right now and then i can always tape study anything else i need to kind of complement my game i guess at the time um, I think somebody else who has a really similar approach that I enjoy learning from would definitely be like Cody Maltese. Yeah. Um, you know, his approach to his guillotine system has, you know, makes it very easy for a guy like me to come in and be like, oh, I see that. Mm-hmm. And I know, I, you know, even after watching, uh, I know the Henzo guys are really great at guillotines too. Uh, and, and I think the coolest thing is, you know, I'm a big Kimura person. And if anybody knows anything about guillotines and kimuras, they're literally the same thing. It's just where you put the arm, whether or not you feed the arm behind the back for the figure four grip or you put it behind their head to get the head wrap. Like, so anytime you have a kimura entrance, you basically have a guillotine entrance. So I think that's really funny. Like, I can basically just switch modes when I'm training and be like, oh, today we're going to do kimuras, today we're going to do guillotines because my game pretty much feeds into that kind of, that kind of look behind the back like that. Um, who else? The uh, luxury of training with. I think that's the biggest one. I spend a lot of time in Elevate just because they, they do all those seminars in the area. So, And, you know, I think there's a big thing, too, with, you know, seeing some of these newer gyms with a lot of younger guys like white and blue belts. It's, you know, it's, it's fun getting over there. you got a bunch of guys that are hungry for jiu-jitsu. The same way, like, at our gym. We, I, think, I think our gym right now is, like, 50% white belts. Oh, wow. It's just it's, it's insane just seeing things cycle out like that. Like, I mean, I mean, we still have plenty of you know, upper belts and whatnot, but it's, I think you just see this overwhelming, like our fundamentals class is massive. And then when they kind of come over to our regular class, it's, yeah, I think we're like 40 people on like a Monday night and half of them are white belts probably. So, I mean, it's awesome to see. 
you know, and they, you, you get in that weird thing too when you, they first come in. They're like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I wish I could give you more work. I wish I could give you more resistance. And it's like, oh, don't worry. Like me just like repping out moves on you. It just works too for me. Like, totally. Well, I mean, that's – and like going back to what we were saying earlier, like if you can hold yourself accountable, I can roll with a white belt and get just as much out of the roll as I would an upper belt if I'm just holding myself accountable, making sure that I'm doing proper technique and picking best practice when I'm rolling and not just diving on the first thing I see. One of the interesting things that John Danaher said recently is he said you should roll with lower belts, like with people below your skill level, about 80% of the time. Yeah, 80-20. I, I tell other people that too. I go a little bit more into it like with uh, – like I'll say – like for me, and, th- and this is pretty much what I do. Um, I like you know getting my butt whooped about 20% of the time. Um, and even if, even if that means grabbing like a blue or purple belt and then just like, you know – not not trying so hard to stop the guard pass. Like, I don't want to say I give up the guard pass, right? Like, okay. I'm going to hold them accountable and make sure they do a proper guard pass. But I'm not going to, like, fight tooth and nail to try to retain my guard. So if they get past me, then, you know, I, I stay inside control, let them work. And I'm not going to give up a submission, right? I'm, they're going to have to properly get it, but, you know, I'm not going to fight tooth and nail to avoid them setting it up. So that's how I could get that 20% of me because I know a lot of people are in that position, right? When you're at, you know, you're one of the upper belts in your gym, it's hard to kind of get that, that, you know, but what 20% of the time. Um, and likewise, you're like, well, you should be repping out on people 80% of the time. Well, if you're at the bottom of the food chain, that could be difficult, right? Sure. So, I mean, that's where drilling comes in, right? Where you're like, you're a white belt and you're just making sure you're getting your drilling in. But that can be difficult, too, because you've got to hold yourself accountable when you're drilling and making sure you're d- drilling proper moves and not poor habits. Um, but then I, I go even further and say about 20% of the time you should be at a competitive level with somebody. About 20% of my roles I like trying to making sure it's, you know, competition speed, um, try to do equal technique as much as possible. And I have my guys that I do that for. Um, but yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that's, and you know, and another thing I'll do, like a lot of people at my gym know when I'm doing this, but I don't do it much as I basically do like speed tap rounds where I pick a pace and I literally like, and I just fire, fire, fire. Like I, I do not hold at any point, and I'm just firing relentlessly, seeing how many taps I can get in a short amount of time. Because, I mean, honestly, that's, that's how I roll competitively. Is I, I pick a pace, and I go until the match is over. Like, if I die in the process, I die in the process. <laughs> like, but, I mean, that's just my style. Like, I, I like firing relentlessly. I love submissions. Um, I'm trying to back off and work on positional a little bit more. And that's a huge thing I'm working on now is just, like, is a lot more positional pinning control. But, you know, it's, it, it's hard when you have an A game that kind of avoids that and trying to find how they'll finally, like, kind of bridge together. But Well, the first rule of jiu-jitsu is don't die in the process. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, so Yeah, I mean, like, it's just so much fun when you just, like... It is. Uh, you just get out there and you just go 100 miles an hour. Like, I don't know. I know that's, like, that's poor habit, but it's just so much fun. I mean, like I said, like, a lot of... A lot of our gym came up that way where they just like they pick a pace, they hold it, and you just start learning technique along the way and you just stay at the same speed. Well, you know, honestly, I don't think fun gets talked about enough in jujitsu because I think fun's a huge part of it because that's what makes people stick with it. And people enjoy different things. Like you may enjoy complete rapid fire submission. A lot of people are more what I would call like station to station jujitsu guys. Yeah. Where, like I really enjoy methodically progressing to a position, making sure the guy cannot get out as I solidify the no. position and then moving on. And and uh, a conversation that I also had with Jay Quitfield that really surprised me, but I learned a lot from, mm-hmm. was when, uh, I, you know, I, I did the, you know, everybody knows I do the Barambolo, right? <laughs> and at the time when I started doing it, I was m- maybe one of the only guys in North Carolina that was really doing it because our gyms are very traditional, have a self-defense focus. That's changed now. Was it after years. a Mendez seminar or something? No. I started <laughs> doing it before, like, before, oh, before like, the Mendez brothers? Yeah. yeah well, yeah, no. Like, they, they, I'm not saying they learned it from me. But I'm not, yeah. But 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 really, what happened was so I, I enjoyed the daily heva guard, and uh, and I um, and to me the daily the Baron Bowl is just another daily heva sweep. And I, you know, yeah. a flexible guy, uh, did yoga. I'd seen it being done in competitions, probably by the Mendez brothers, and I tried it. And it was one of those things. I think everybody has that first thing that they have a natural affinity for, and they're like, oh man, I really like this. Yes. This movement makes sense to me. And for me, it was that. And from there, of course, I devoured everything the Mendez brothers put out. We started bringing in Hoffa and Guy for seminars. 
And but at that time, you know, and even today, you know, people kind of looked down on the move and, you know, particularly in, in this sort of pretty traditional jujitsu area. And so I got made fun of for being the Barambolo guy. Um, and so I, t- I was talking to Jake and, I, and, and, you know, who's one of the teachers I respect the most. And I was like, hey, man, you know, I, I want to have my, my goal has always been to have good, solid, well-rounded, fundamental jujitsu over the long term. I want to learn it all and I want to build out from the basics and then then learn it all. Yeah. I was like, but I really like doing this move. <laughs> and and Jake's like, do it uh, do it one or two days a week. He's like, 80, yes. 80% of the time, work your fundamentals and then give yourself a day or two at, you know, an open matter or a class to work on your crazy stuff. And, yep. but, and, 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 you know, it doesn't have to be the Marambolo, right? It has to be, but like, I think, you know, and, and the, the point, the, the larger point I'm trying to make is, it's very important to enjoy jujitsu because I always tell oh, people, yeah. I always tell people the, the best martial art is the one you like because that's the one you'll actually do. And, you know, I would rather have a dude be passionate about something and dedicate their life to it and use that as a tool to improve their life than just be like, man, this is a grind. I can't believe I have to go to jujitsu today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's always a constant battle. And, you know, I hate when people tell me like, you know, I would never do jujitsu if somebody was telling me how to train mm-hmm. or like how to compete or when to compete. Like, I mean, everything I do is on my own terms. And I mean, that's what makes it fun. Like, I mean, I, you know, I was only training like one or two days a week, probably for the last couple of weeks, just kind of chilling out, having some fun with it, just doing, you know, having me time outside. So, so and it's we all, fun we all, getting back in. Right. And, and like we all, and, and there's a time and a place for that, right? Like we all go through periods of, I mean, those of us that are really serious about jujitsu, we have times when we're training like six, seven days a week, yes. 10, 12 classes. And we have times where it's like, you know. I'm going to go spend some time outside, hang out with my family, recover my body a little bit. But for, for me, you know, because we all have different goals, right? Like mm-hmm. some people want to be a, like DeAndre Corbet is an elite competitor and he mm-hmm. might have goals to win the adult black belt world championship. I, I will not. Ne- that's not my goal, you know, and, and I would if I could. But, but but but, you know, some people just want to get in shape, get, build a community, hang out with their friends. Some people want to learn self-defense. Some people want to some people love competing. Some people hate it. I think there should be space in jujitsu for all those people. Yeah. Like I always joke and tell people like I dread competing, but I feel like obligated to because I'm one of the few people that, you know, like I have the ability to travel and compete. So. I feel like it's more of like a service to my gym to get out there, compete, you know, be that measuring stick, see how I do. So when I go back to the gym, people are like, okay, so he's he's doing this well. So if I roll with him, not that you should measure yourself against somebody in the gym, mm-hmm. but, you know, I feel like I feel like I can bring a lot back to the gym by get, having that competition experience. I mean, it gives me anxiety, but, you know, I force myself to do it. And, you know, it's fun afterwards. I like I, I like it more for, like, coaching, watching, and just hanging out with friends. The competing part, you know, is a little... Some days I like it, some days I don't. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Yes, Betsy O'Donovan. You want to know the weirdest thing about traveling with you? Do I? You do. And here it is. It's that no matter where we are, you somehow always find a fellow jiu-jitsu practitioner. That's true. It may be my collection of dozens of Toro BJJ t-shirts. Or the ears. Yeah, the ears are also a dead giveaway. <laughs> um, so my favorite example of this might be when we were in Belize City uh, at the airport on our way back from our honeymoon. Do you remember? Absolutely. We were in the airport and I saw a guy wearing a Gracie University shirt and I came over because I was wearing a Toro BJJ shirt. And five minutes later, you were best friends. So if you want to make friends and influence people all over the world, go to ToroBJJ.com and get one of their three for $25 t-shirt deals or just one singular t-shirt, all of which will introduce you to foreigners wherever you go. Also makes it less awkward when you double leg them in the airport. It's interesting, you know, a lot of high-level competitors feel this way. Like, Bagels came on the show and talked about how, like, every time, still get scared. Is that hundreds oh, of competitions, jiu-jitsu matches? And, like, you know, it... it but but I think it is valuable, and I will say this to all the, 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 the school instructors out there or the upper belts that may, may aspire to run a school one day. Like, I think it's awesome to compete whether you win or you lose. Yes. I, because, like, you know, for one, your, your measuring stick point is a valid one. But, like, I also think it's a powerful message to send to your students that, like, look, I got a, you know, I came out there and put myself on the line. I lost. Yeah. The world kept, continued to turn. And it's not easy getting out there. <laughs> no, no, man. I respect anybody who steps on the mat, yeah, especially like, to compete. I mean... Yeah, like I, I don't care if I win or lose. I just don't want to do something stupid. <laughs> like, like, like if I if I lose implementing my game, like if I lose legitly, but if I do something stupid, that that'll kill me worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it's also like like you were saying in the gym, like staying interesting, 
staying interested in jujitsu, I think the best thing I do is like every month I have a different thing. Like I, I joke and tell people like I haven't done a heel hook in like two months probably. Now that's a lie now after like like you know being motivated with Miha coming in and like I you know I was able to teach at TFTC and hang out with Brad and Cody and whatnot. So hanging out with those guys, you know, obviously I get back to it a little bit. But uh you know, my own gym, I don't really and I find that balance where I want to make sure that I'm holding them accountable and helping them work on those things. But I remember, like, when Bernardo Faria came to town, like, after we worked on those over-unders, and he talked about, like, pressure, pinning. You know, he's very low-risk. Like, he'll just win. He'll just grind out wins, mm-hmm. right? Or if he, he's able to break them, great. He'll pass into, like, one of his finishes, right? Um, but, the you know, the next month in my gym, I was getting, I think, like, 20 taps to pressure everyone hated me <laughs> well it was just like and i just was like i just was pinning yeah. i was just pinning yeah. good shoulder pressure and it was just it was too much fun and i feel i felt so evil for it but it was so much fun no and there's something to be said about that and now that my game's even evolving into more like pinning positions i think right now it's it's all back takes like i'm trying to find back takes from everywhere um and then what i'll do is i'll i'll basically i'll take the back i won't work on my finishing anymore um, you know, I'll kind of let people regard because I also want to work on my passing. And I think the next area I'm going to start looking at is one. I have a horrible relationship with omoplatas, so I kind of want to get back and working on those. So I think I got my first omoplata in like three years recently, just because it's not something that I. But they're always there. I just, I just hate it because it's it can be so hard to finish at the high level. Dude, all I do is omoplatas lately, and I'll have to share this finish that I, I learned from Michael Lange that, yeah. uh, that I, 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 it was amazing. It was a light bulb moment. We'll do that when we get to train together, which hopefully will be soon. And uh, and if you're competing March 3rd, Andrew Bittner just promised not to heel hook you. No, he didn't. Well, I will be in the gi. <laughs> okay, so he promised not to heel hook you in the gi. Well, now that I can do tolds and knee bars, gi's a little bit more fun. Yeah. Because you can just hold people like honest, because it's one thing when like when people are basically like leaving their legs out there. And you're like, this is horrible practice because, it, you know, yeah. like a purple belt, it was one thing. It was just hard to see. So that's why I like Nogi because everything was there. So you could use the leg locks to legitly train, chain into upper body attacks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And nobody had could just leave their feet hanging out there without any respect for your game, right? Definitely. So a brown belt now, you know, it's a lot more fun. For sure. And, and this, incidentally, is another reason. Like, I mean, I, I really – I'm interested in the way Cody structures his curriculum because they do – all leg locks from day one. And I think there's something to be said for that and something that makes me nervous about that. But like for me, I, like I'll just say as someone, the reason that I think of this is when I was blue belt, uh, I barambolo, daily heave guard all day long. And then toe holds and knee bars started being legal. And, <laughs> and I was like, dang, you know, and I rolled with some guys who were good at those things and I got caught and I was like, man, I, I'm so used to putting my feet here and mm-hmm. not having to worry. Then I went up and trained at Revolution BJJ <laughs> and Andrew yes. and Daniel and all those dudes are like, ah, oh, your footsies are in danger now. And, and so, which is a, a great process of learning, right? Because over the, that, and that's part of why I've been focusing on footlocks and footlock defenses. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I want to be able to continue to play these positions I enjoy, but also not get my feet broken. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Cause I think a lot of people that, you know, work barren bolos or inverted games, like there's a way to do those and avoid leg locks, mm-hmm. but you got to know what that is. And until you're being held accountable with leg locks in play, then you may develop bad habits, you know, and you make that switch from purple to brown belt and you may be left out. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that, and that's like the, cause the other end of that is some people like, Oh, barren bolos and reverse de la Hiva inversions don't work because of leg locks. It's like, eh, they still work. You just, you actually have to, you can, you know, there's a lot more intricacies in the transitions then that mm-hmm. you have to watch out for and make sure you're using proper precise foot positioning yeah rich brun from kasai came on the show who he trains a lot with the danaher guys trains with danaher himself trains with the meows and he says the next big thing is going to be barambolo to leg lock which i think is probably true well you're seeing i mean all last night you just saw reverse delhiva entrances to the insights and kaku i'm doing air quotes right now um (laughs) you know so since we're talking about breaking feet and last night you want to talk about the eddie bravo invitational of featherweights sure we might as well cover that a little bit yeah yeah i'm pretty sure i i called the second they said john callistine was coming on i was like well throw everything out the window it's gonna be the same people who he's gonna go against i think i miscalled i thought john battle was gonna beat mike but um i was basically like yep all inside heel hooks to the win and props to Gio for, you know, I mean, he was he was playing the avoiding game, you know, hoping to get to the, the overtime and win. And, I mean, he practically did. Uh, he was so close because he actually popped, what, John's arm out. 
on that very last mm-hmm. when John went to shake him off, his yeah. shoulder popped out of place. Oh wow! I think that's what happened. That's wow. what it looked like because he stood up with him, like he turned over onto it, and I think his shoulder twisted, and he stood up. It looked like he forced it a lot and basically picked Gio up by just his arm. So I'm pretty sure his arm popped mm-hmm. out on that. Is what it looked like. So John Calistine wins EBI, and like you, you told me about a year ago when I asked who to watch for heel hooks and oh, who yeah. to break down table, and you told me this Calistine guy is awesome. And so I, I, I was what was that a year and a half ago? That was about a year something? and a half ago. Yeah, you it's just, crazy. And, yeah, it's wild, and like and like at the time he was a beast, and now he looks like he's just on another level I from mean, when you first told me about him. You know, I was I was joking about when people were like, "Oh, who's this John guy?" It's just like when I, I was like. I'm pretty sure the only reason he's not competing at the highest level right now is he's waiting for Eddie to retire from competing because he's basically his prodigy at this point. And this is one of the things that sort of bummed me out is that, like, you know, Junio Casio, who we sponsor, who's been on the show a bunch, drew Eddie Cummings in the first round. And I was actually really excited about that. It's a great opportunity. What an opportunity, right, to get to competing against one of the best guys, one of the best mat technicians. And also, like, if you pull the upset, suddenly people are like, oh, my. Oh, yeah. Right? And And Junio's no slouch. Anybody who's rolled with him before knows how insane his game is. Mm. But, I mean, like, even that, it's just like because when I mean, we saw him at the Kasai, right? Mm-hmm. At the Kasai, I mean, he was like he was tying with some of the best in the world, mm-hmm. and I mean, and that that's a testament f- from his game too. In that format, with those with with a points game, when you can't really necessarily, uh, you don't want people to kind of pull on you and get relentlessly guard passed, right? Like, I mean, it changes the game. His stand up's great. His guard passing is will wear you out faster than it'll wear him out, probably, mm-hmm. right? And I think the biggest thing, the biggest difference was this was probably his comfort level because he was like, oh, no points. Like, I just have to avoid the leg locks and keep good positioning. Um, and I know, but like, yeah, that, that entrance was, that was basically, that was the exact same entrance if anybody saw Craig Jones versus Jake C. Shields, mm-hmm. basically using, controlling the far arm to get to the far leg mm-hmm. and then doing like a rolling knee bar entrance through on it. But I mean, into the inside position. Yeah, and, and like anybody who watched Calistine's, the rest of, if you didn't watch EBI last night and you have Fight Pass, you can go back and rewatch it. And I really recommend watching the Calistine matches because the second match was even faster. He, he got that guy in 30 seconds or something. And, then, and again, against No Slouch, like I, all of his matches were rematches too, which made it even more of like, well, it's crazy to think that all those guys that, I mean, he's, I, I think he's beat, all of them at some point, but I think some of them might even beat him in like weird overtimes because they. I know the announcers were recalling some of the matches because they said that he was one and one with Juni. Yeah, and now I'm like, I'm asking you. I'm like, uh, can you figure out when those were? Because I would love to watch those. Yeah, and I mean, didn't they say that Mike Davila had beat him too one time? I think like, maybe because yeah. I didn't know that. But. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure because I know he's been doing very well against them and he's competed against all of them before, which is like I said, makes it funnier that they're all in that bracket and then John wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said, the only reason John wasn't is because Eddie Cummings was going to be in that bracket. So um, two questions for you. Other than John Calistine, obviously, who were you most impressed with last night? And was there anything that surprised you about last night? You mentioned that you had picked Mike Battle to win over 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 Davila, but uh, other than that, like any, 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 any impressions of the event as a whole? Um, no, nah, I mean, it was, it was pretty predictable. I would say the the fight of the night for me was definitely the Gio versus Rafael match. Yeah. That was so much fun to watch. Uh, I think to nerd out Gio's transition from butterfly coming up on the front headlock and then rolling to mount was insane. Um, the fact he didn't finish that is depressing to me, but, um, I think that match in general was, I guess a surprise. Like I knew those are two of the more explosive guys. Like, Gio is kind of off the wall with a lot of his when he, when he's playing offensively, it's it's fun to watch, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with Hafiel. Like yeah. they're both exciting people to watch. That's why it was a little disappointing, but not surprised when he went against John. I mean, he already went to overtime twice, so I mean, he was exhausted. Yeah. But I mean, he was playing an avoidance game against John, which was a little disappointing because I would love to see Gio try to fire on him yeah. himself, but. I'd love to see those two guys go against each other fresh. fresh yeah, because yeah. Gio also has a funky body type with some really interesting physical attributes that I think poses a lot of problems. Yes, so. I mean, I mean, we saw last time. I mean, he was in an inside heel hook with Eddie Cummings for like eight minutes before Eddie finally tried to just take his back, which was just. I mean, Eddie will say that was just poor stri- strategic planning on his part, uh, and then losing in overtime. But I know. I love to see more matches with Gio, just because, like you said, funky body type. Um, he does. He's very good sub defense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Calistine almost armbarred him. Yeah, and, and and he and he escaped. I thought in a yeah. very impressive fashion. Yeah, that was a what was that? That was off a counter because Gio went for. I mean, to be fair, that was kind of a half 
half attempt at a Kimura roll there. Mm-hmm. And then Kalasine did a beautiful, like, came up, switched sides, and dropped in on the armbar counter. So, yeah. An excellent match from some high-level guys. And that's probably, like, uh, you know, I don't know if that was my favorite match of the night. But it was it was a good event. It was nice to see Kalistein get uh, such a, a powerful win on a big stage. And, and walk away with 15K. Yeah, 23 years old. So I'm sure yeah. we haven't seen the last of him. So in, in the few minutes we have left, so we talked about EBI, we talked about your journey, what you're working on now. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about? Uh, let's see. Not really. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think when you're, you know, you're training jiu-jitsu, you know, it's just, it's just another day in the office. Um, no. You, what about people to thank? Do you have anybody that you particularly want to shout out? Oh, definitely. I mean, everyone at Gracie Raleigh. You guys know who you are. Coach Brandon, Bumpkin. Um, definitely not Evan Arredondo. Yeah. Just- <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Not <laughs> Definitely not Chris Luter. <laughs> no, like, yeah. I mean, all my training partners there are awesome. I wouldn't be where I am without them. Uh, yeah. Just just parents for being supportive. Uh Brother's training jiu-jitsu up in Baltimore now. Oh, snap. So I got him coming up behind me. So that'll keep me motivated if he sticks with it. How much younger uh, is your brother? Three years. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's funny because he technically got me. We started. He started with the UFC game that I was talking about. So, And then it took him so many years after me to finally start jiu-jitsu. So, um, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I just think, I guess I can just thank the community as a whole. I think we're, we're lucky we're lucky to have the community we have here in North Carolina. So, I mean, not even just North Carolina, but I guess what would you call the tri-state? Like, I mean, the guys up in Richmond, the guys uh, yeah, down you know, in South Carolina. Yeah, down in South Carolina. Like, the guys over on the coast. Like, we have such a good community here, and I think we do a great job at supporting everyone. And, yeah, I can't imagine when I started jiu-jitsu six years ago to, to be where we are now and just be like, I mean, I mean jiu-jitsu is truly a lifestyle. I mean, it's, you know, you, you live it, you breathe it. And I'm lucky to be where I am now, you know, being able to, you know, having such a great community, such great friends around me, pushing me and just having, yeah. And just, just being able to always set those short-term goals and just continue to grow in jujitsu and see that, you know, be nerdy and like, well, jujitsu is just like life and see how I'm growing in life as well. Yeah. You're corny. I love it. Uh, so, uh, like, uh, what, what what are you up to next? Are you teaching any seminars or workshops? Are you are you or where will you be competing next? Other than U.S. Grappling May, March third, anything people can come out and watch you yeah. or learn from you? I think at? that's a misconception about me. It's like I, I lay pretty low. If people want, you know, when 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 I go in, you know, and I visit gyms, if I teach, it's normally just because they approach me. You know, um, I don't really seek it out that much so i mean if anybody wants me to stop by i know i I get you know offers to kind of like drop in hang out yeah teach a few moves or something like that you know i love visiting gyms just getting to meet the community get to meet the people around so i don't think i have anything up i know we have the gordon ryan seminar coming to gracie thanks to roll forever thanks to roll forever for that there's betty broadhurst betty broadhurst is is the woman working her magic again bringing gordon ryan to north carolina there are three slots left i believe something Something like that that. i i don't know if anybody dropped out or not she knows the exact numbers because she's putting together but yeah i guess i guess i should think you know um on that note the you know seminars in the area um you know and talking about being thankful for the community you know i want to i definitely want to shout out um you know so cam photography Mm -hmm. shout out toro bjj um i mean dirty white belt and obviously roll forever Mm -hmm. like i mean you guys do a great job at supporting all the athletes in the area you know and and i think North Carolina Jiu-Jitsu is known because of you guys and being great representatives on the road as well. So, Well, Andrew, it's, it's been a pleasure having you in the studio. Thanks for all the kind words, and thanks for all the, the Jiu-Jitsu knowledge that you dropped in the past hour. I'm sure folks oh, are yeah. going to be really excited to hear it. And it, You can watch Andrew compete on March 3rd at U.S. Grappling, and I'm sure he'll be coming soon to a gym near you to not heel hook you. Not heel hook. <laughs> thanks for having me, Jeff. <laughs> Anytime, man. All right, guys, this has been another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. If you, I want to thank all the Patreon supporters that, uh, that help us keep the show going. Uh, we're going to continue to bring you the best guests from locally and internationally. I'm always excited to talk to you all every Sunday. If you want to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, that option is available to you. You can always email the show at cagesidewhoop at gmail.com to let us know what you want more of, what you want less of. I will also remind you that uh, next week we are going to have a show with Jiu-Jitsu historian Jose Tufi Kairos, 
and very excited to talk with him. That could be an extra long show. So that being said, I will wish you all a pleasant week. Happy training. This is Dirty White Bell Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw, and we'll see you next Sunday.